And jiu-jitsu is not power. It's technique. It's precision. It's, you know, it's sophistication. Yeah, power has, uh, has, has to do with it as well, but that is not the number one. If you could pick only one attribute, that should not be the number one. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Today on the show, we have a legendary figure in the world of BJJ, none other than fourth degree black belt, Carl the Silver Fox Prevec. In addition to my home instructors, Carl has been one of the most important figures in my personal development of my jiu-jitsu game. He's not just a coach, he's a mentor and a friend who's helped guide me and many others around the world with his wisdom and strategies that make up this amazing art. But that's not all. Carl played a pivotal role in getting this very podcast off the ground. He took a chance on a relatively unknown host, agreeing to be my first guest in 2020. Carl's journey through martial arts is nothing short of awe-inspiring. In 1993, when jiu-jitsu finally made its way to the New Jersey, New York area, Carl Prevec embraced it with open arms. He became one of Henzo Gracie's first American students and dedicated his spare moments to mastering the gentle art. In 2006, after years of relentless practice, he proudly received his black belt from Henzo Gracie. In addition to his academies, Carl's expertise extends far beyond his own mats. He's become a sought-after instructor worldwide, constantly refining his skills and knowledge to benefit his students. He shared his wisdom through his fluid BJJ book and Daijutsu video series, He's been featured on the TriStar Gym YouTube channel alongside esteemed MMA coach Faraz Sahabi and has several amazing offerings on BJJ Fanatics. Now you might be wondering, how did Fox earn the nickname Silver Fox? One of his training partners at the Henzo Gracie Academy couldn't help but notice Carl's remarkable ability to outfox him on the mat, despite being more athletic, bigger, and younger. With his distinguished gray hair and his cunning prowess, his partner began to affectionately call him the Silver Fox, and the name simply stuck. In this episode, we delve into leadership development in jiu-jitsu, explore Carl's upcoming jiu-jitsu app, uncover the secrets of using the pool for BJJ training, and discover how to be the ultimate training partner. And with that, I give you Carl the Silver Fox Prevec. Fox, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Good to see you, Adolfo. <laughs> well, I should say welcome back. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's yeah. been too long. I, I believe you were episode number one. First of all, I got I got to say thank you for being on the show number one. You were an important important part of the show and my personal journey as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Really means the world. I, I brought this up last time, people. If you want, go back and and watch Fox's episode. You know, during the lockdowns, Fox was having an online show, which he still has a uh, role with the Fox. But for a lot of us who couldn't train for a bit, his show was instrumental in a lot of people's growth. I know a lot of my style now comes from you, Fox. It's it's crazy. You've really created a global tribe. What's that been like? I mean, it's continued to grow. Yeah, it's continued to grow and evolve. You know, a lot of people have been reaching out to me over the years, you know, like asking questions about, you know, a variety of things, uh, training strategies, specific technical questions. And I remember I was driving with a friend of mine in, on, a, on a highway in Germany and I was talking to a guy in India and he was asking me a technical questions and I'm trying to explain things to him. And every once in a while, the call got dropped and I was, all right, we got to do something different. So we started doing this online live troubleshooting where I'm on the mats and basically people have a chance to ask live if they subscribe to uh, YouTube questions, technical questions, 
training questions, tournament questions, you know, training strategies, and you know, basically anything about jujitsu. And we started doing it once a month. It's kind of an oddball time. I picked the time that I thought would work on a global basis, meaning that it's never completely like four o'clock a.m. anywhere when we do it. It's ten thirty a.m. Eastern time, so seven thirty West West Coast time, which a lot of people on the West Coast time already up at that time. During COVID, we didn't know what to do, and basically we decided to do it on a daily basis until we get unlocked. We wind up doing 99 episodes. Since then, we've gone to once a week. So we continued the show, but we've done it once a week. And now it's in the next step of the evolution. I'm actually working on this. And you've had some involvement in this as well, is an app that's going to be available. Uh, well, eventually it's going to be at everything, but Apple is going to be first. So it's going to be an instructional app. And I think the kind of the three main points that we stand on is, so first of all, the organization is going to be, you know, the way we organize things is not just by position, but also by submission, both defensively as well as, de- as defensively. So you basically can formulate whatever techniques you're working on and you can sort of customize in a way that allows you to work on those techniques specifically. Uh, and obviously you can change that over time as, as your game evolves. We will retain the live feature. So we will still do live on YouTube, but we will have a more involved live approach with the app. So you will still, if you're a subscriber, you still will have a chance to ask live questions. Hey Fox, you know, I saw this technique, you should showed it to me, you know, I saw it at a camp or a seminar or online and and can you help me with this? And then the third one is obviously sort of my style of game, which tends to be pretty aggressive, submission-oriented style. I think between those three features, um, you know, we have pretty loyal following and you know very well from the YouTube that a lot of people have been following us for years and, and regular participants you have such a dearth of information and content out there and jujitsu is such a vast thing putting together this app how did you even corral all the cats there's just so much to it it's different to teach students in class versus doing the online thing or this app thing the funny thing is the teaching part is is easy for me in a sense because i truly view when i'm looking at that camera on youtube or on the app is i truly view the people and i enjoy that interaction you said we created a tribe which we did we literally have an audience on all continents except for Antarctica. And I look at those people as quasi my students because if somebody becomes a long-term viewer, they will pick up a lot of things from this source and their game will evolve to resemble at least partially a lot of the things I do, just like my students would. When I'm teaching, I kind of view that it's it's pretty easy for me to kind of make that interaction, make that connection with the people, even though it's online. The hard part was the organization. We have so many videos and it's easy, like people have to do the service and so forth, but to try to organize it in a way that makes sense to people that it becomes more of anybody can customize what is offered that is suitable for their game. That was the difficult part. You got to think of everyone because they, everyone's coming from all different stages of jujitsu, whether it's the beginner, you know, the, the mid belt person or the, the black belt and everything in between. So they're all searching for various different things. One person could be typing in triangle, let's say a beginner who's, versus someone who's looking for defense or <laughs> late stage escapes. That's a lot to wrangle, man. Yeah, exactly. Let's throw in a few more complications because if you look at a triangle, triangle is fairly simple. Everybody that trains jujitsu for a month knows what a triangle is. Maybe they can't do it well, but I try to break things up into sort of more understandable pieces. You know, you have regular triangle, you have inverted triangles, you have reverse triangles, you have what I call ugly triangles, you have teepees, you know, so it becomes so many possible things. You know, again, the organization literally took me three or four weeks to come up with a skeleton 
or sort of a, at least a basic outline of how we organize this. And then we had to get guys to help us classify things based on that organization. So I hope you guys like it. The way you develop students. Uh, it's interesting having talked to Mike uh, Gemarillo yeah. and, and yourself. Um, I see that you guys are, you're in this stage or maybe, I don't know when you, the began but you really are developing people like yeah. uh, holistically it seems like a 360 degrees type of development when did that happen did you come out the gate like that or no not at all you know mike jeremillo is one, actually one of my closest friends very good black belt uh one of the main instructors at the henzo academy now and uh you know he and i traveled quite a bit competed together back in the you know 2010 time frame you know and and i think we look at uh, the role of jiu-jitsu not just as a sport, I really don't want it to be to be a sport. I don't want it to go in the Olympics. I actually do enjoy the fact that it, there's so many rule sets around the world, and that people constantly try to de uh, develop a new one that that's going to make it more exciting. At the end of the day, I don't think it's the rule set that makes it exciting. I think it's the people that make it exciting, the competitors. As an art, it gives you a chance to really put your personal imprint on it versus a sport, which becomes much more you know okay, this is the rules, and everybody's going to try you know. And I think it becomes very limiting. Like I, I think judo has gone down that path quite a bit of course it will develop any sport will develop your character but i think jiu-jitsu allows us to you know look at it as an art this is my sort of interpretation of this art this is what i want to do with it i want people to have an, an amazing technical jiu-jitsu obviously be able to defend themselves but more importantly actually be able to deal with people that are bigger than them first protect themselves and then get a, you know get a submission look at it as a martial art, as a self-defense system. That's sort of how I look at it. But I think, you know, I started to look at, I got talked into teaching, you know, when I got my black belt, this is back in the day when purple belts could could walk on water. I kind of got talked into it. And I just, you know, basically I just viewed it as, a, as an you know instructor. That's it, coach. Now I look at my role much broader is, is actually I've, I've had the privilege I was going to call it pleasure, but it's not always, ple <laughs> not pleasure always pleasurable of helping guys that maybe, you know, really smart or hardworking guys, maybe they would have never had a chance to become the best versions of themselves. They could be. And through jujitsu and going through the apprenticeship program in the academy is, is become school owners and, you know, quite successful at that. And now they're, they're the ones now they're breeding the next generation, helping them grow and helping people. Uh, you know, I like to think that, uh, that, our, our job is to help people achieve their goals. They may come in for jujitsu, but hopefully they will eventually get a lot more out of that. Yeah, they seem to, you know, having witnessed and attached myself to your online presence for so many years, like the leech I am. <laughs> I would call that a good student. <laughs> <laughs> having witnessed the, you know, a lot of your high level black belts once you've developed and your lower belts that you're allowing them to explore different things, like whether it's like on the show, camera work, whatever, production work, learn things like that. But I'm fascinated also by your black belts, some of which, you know, that, that I've been privy to that have opened other academies, as you said, a couple in Florida. And you mentioned this apprenticeship program. Can you go a little more into that and what is your advice to other senior black belts out there that are looking to finally start developing other black belts yeah so I, I, it's not a formal apprenticeship program but basically once somebody expresses a desire to teach and and, and kind of look at jiu-jitsu in a broader sense not just come in train and, and go home which is fine bulk of my students are, are, are doing that but you know it becomes a hobby becomes uh, a release uh, you know stress relief it becomes a skill acquisition quest and so forth some of them may compete but some of them eventually like hey fox i'd like to teach so what i usually do 
do is just sort of put them, especially if, if they're sort of a, a blue or purple, we tend to have for the adult classes, we try to have a black belt teaching all classes and there's somebody traveling hurt or temporarily. We, but I usually try to have a black belt teach the adult classes, possibly a brown belt. But as far as the kids classes, they start to help out. So then maybe a senior instructor, maybe a black belt, maybe a brown belt, and maybe as a blue belt, they start to they help with the kids. We have an in-house training also modules that we do maybe twice a year on how to teach a good class for adults, how to teach a good, how to be a good instructor for kids, or how to understand the business aspects of running an academy because a lot of people don't have any understanding of the effort and things you have to do as an academy owner besides just teaching. Promptness, you know, reliability is one of the biggest, biggest issues. And then if they do a good job, they want to have more we try to give them additional responsibilities more hours and eventually they will become so i've had multiple people be full-time employees of the academy and eventually going off on their own we've also sort of beefed up our the the ranks of the female instructors uh, you know within the school which is good because uh, you know participation of females in, in brazilian jiu-jitsu is relatively low compared to other martial arts other sports other you know other activities but i think uh, people can help out on a part-time basis and and eventually evolve into full-time employees or, or academy owners. And, and hopefully by the time they pull the trigger, they've had the education, not just on the mats, but also off the mats on all the aspects of running the academy. Some questions that people have had. Partners who are avoiding you. Some people call it ducking someone else, right? And you're that person. You don't understand why that person's ducking you. How should I approach that? Should I let them tap me? No, this is a difficult question. So my philosophy, and, and guys, understand, you have no idea what that person has. So everything that I'm going to say is based on that. Now imagine the person may have autoimmune disease where they're very fragile. They might have psychological issues. You don't know. And it's not their responsibility to explain to you what is going on through their life. If you're in a good size academy, this should not be an issue. Somebody doesn't want to train with them, let them be. Every person in jiu-jitsu should have the right to say, I don't want to train with him. And that's it. The point is, again, you don't know. And if they want to explain it to you, they will. If they don't want to explain it to you, let them be. Let them train with whoever they want. If you're in an academy that's a decent size, what I mean by that, probably around 200 students, that's a decent size academy. You will have enough training partners that you don't have to worry about it. But what do you care that somebody doesn't want to train with you? Why do you need to train with them? Maybe they don't enjoy it. Maybe you accidentally hurt them. Maybe you're a bad training partner. Maybe they're a little wacky. You know, let them be. Why would you need to be training with this person? Why is it so important? What if you want to be like, you feel like you want, I want to be polite. I want to ask everyone to roll with me. And then you pick up on someone who's hesitating. Not, that's not polite. You know, people think that's polite. No, it's not. You don't know. Like, so listen, I train seven days a week, right? I'm always in my academy. There are days that I'm in pain. A lot of pain. I want to train with people I want to train with. I don't want to train. If you insist, I will do it, but you're not going to enjoy it. And I've had that happen. Probably it's even more intimate training with somebody than, than having a meal. Like I, I want to have lunch with you. Why can't we have lunch together? Why don't you let me take you to lunch? So this is, yeah, this is one of those things that I think, I believe that's the you know place I've grew up. It's just, you don't say no. And, and generally speaking, if I'm on the mats and I'm training, if I'm teaching, no. But generally speaking, you don't, you know, you basically train with everybody, but also understand that in today's age where the guy that's teaching, do you understand he's there seven days? If that injury that he's nursing goes over the edge, guess what? He may not be able to teach for the next three weeks. If you get banged up, you're a hobbyist, you get banged up, you don't feel like it, you don't have to show up for the next three weeks. 
Hopefully somebody will call you, say everything okay. But if you're not there for three days, nobody cares. So the point is, I I think this is like actually one of those things that kind of there's there's this, and I, I want to say democratic aspect of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that anybody should be able to train with anybody. No, I, I believe it's quite contrary. I think it's it's people should be just hey. You know, like read the body language. If if you want to train with somebody, you give them a look. If they look down and or look away, they don't want to train with you. Just let them be. Move on to the next guy that wants to train with you. You know, I think it's it's been almost exaggerated to where like I have a right to train with anybody. No, you don't. There's a pretty big percentage of practitioners out there that have this feeling. I have a right to train with anybody. No, you don't. It's a mutual consent. Maybe you're a bad training partner. Maybe you're a bad person. Maybe they don't like you. Maybe maybe you smell. They could be a zillion of reasons. Or maybe you are the greatest guy in the world. You smell great and, and you're the best training partner. But maybe they're wacky. So why would you force them... Jiu-jitsu is uncomfortable to begin with. Why would you force them to go into that extra? Let them evolve. Maybe they eventually they will want to train with you. You got 50 pounds on them. Generally speaking, I put people with, with somebody, but if they don't want to train with, with them, I'm like, okay. Then I try to find out what is the reason. If there's a good reason for it, then obviously I, I need to step in. I need to talk to people. But if there's no, you know, if there's just sort of miscommunications, you know, it's just human, normal human nature. People gravitate towards other people that they want to be with. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, T-E-E spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at forever white belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. Another question we had is, uh, Fox, how, how can I develop my late stage defense? Mm. That's a tough one because that puts you in, in deep positions. Typically, I see upper belts trying to work on this kind of stuff with lower belts. You might get injured because you're so late. You know, everyone's looking at Gary Tonin as the extreme example of this, right? How do I develop my late stage defense? That's really tough. I think good training partners is, is probably one of the most important things. You know, I've trained at, at the Henzo Gracie Academy in the Blue Basement for for decades, and and you know sometimes people would come in, and again, you know, they want to train with Gary, and they would just not understand that. Listen, Gary's been here every single day for the last two months, training three four hours a day. He's beat up, and you're trying to show the show people how good you are. Again, it's not a good training partner, but good training partners can help you develop that late stage defense. So there's a couple of different ways you could do this. Uh, one of the things, obviously, if you slow down the, slow down your roll, <laughs> it's a good way because then you know, things don't happen as quickly. So you can kind of figure out things, figure out the micro angles and direction. Sometimes you go the wrong way and it's like, oh crap. You know, obviously if the guy's cranking that arm bar, it's, it's, you don't want to go that the wrong direction. So there's certain people you can't do that with. That's one. So again, Good training partners, slowing things down. Third one is this is a very difficult aspect, isn't it? That's that's a function of experience, is to understand as it's happening where you need to go. So a lot of people tend to use defense sequentially. So, you know, like on the, on our YouTube channel, what I teach is like, okay, here's early stage defense, here's mid mid-stage defense, here's late stage defense. That doesn't mean that you go through those stages sequentially because by the time 
you get to that mid or late stage, it's too late for the first one. You're wasting split seconds and that's a lot of time on early stages. It's gone. So you need to actually also develop the understanding, the feeling that the early stage or mid stage defense has passed and you go directly into late stage defense rather than wasting time in those sequences. So that's also very important. That's generally speaking experience, obviously, but also those first two, meaning slowing things down and good training partners help you determine that because you get to read the situation, let's call it, (laughs) read the situation quickly. And that enables you, again, to skip one and two and go straight into three. Yeah, when everyone always thinks of like the armbar example from bottom or something, when someone, you're in that position and when can I hitchhike or when I can't. I'm a big fan of flow rolling and, you know, some people poo-poo that that idea, but the reality is that's where you develop like really good sensitivities to sort of some very, very good subtleties. You know, a lot of times, you know, I like Uregatame is one of my big weapons, you know. I don't call it choy bar because I've, you know, I, the way people do it, I, you know, I've actually used to do that, you know, five, 10 years ago, kind of weave the leg through. I found that high level guys tend to escape it and generally wind up on top. If I use it, I, I use different things, but I call it razor arm bar, upside down arm bar, whatever you want to call it. It's one of my really, really important weapons. But what I've done is like when I catch people, I can literally just rip it and it's done, but I choose to apply, to kind of hold it and let give, almost give them a little bit of slack to see where they're going with it. So I use the same kind of approach on on the offensive side. So you could use the same approach on the defensive side, meaning, you know, if you have a good training partner to slow things down, you get it to a point is like, you know that you could shut it down very quickly, but you let the person move on into the next, next stage, next, you know, almost give them like enough slack that they, so you know where both defensively, this works very well, both defensively as well as offensively, where they're going to go with it and how you can shut it down at the next step or the step after. And that's, again, that helps you evolve your game. And then obviously, if it goes too far, you just tap, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool with that. Yeah. Especially with joint locks, guys, you know, when things get like really heated and, and fast, and I usually try to have at least one of my hands on them as opposed to on the floor. I don't like tapping with my foot. Think about it. People raise their leg and bring it down. By the time you hit the mat, it's that split second. That's That could be major damage. Same thing, you know, like sometimes people just kind of tickle the, the mat pretty far away. Some schools have fans and music going. You know, sometimes you can't hear it. There's 50 people on the mats. You can't hear it. So I'm a fan, especially when, when you're playing with uh, joint locks, get the free hand on them. And verbal is probably, but don't, don't be like, tap. wait, what would you say? No, make it count. Your thoughts on letting others tap you. Now, there could be a variety of context here, but I want to get your general ideas on that. Well, a lot of times, you know, if if I go with, with training partners I trust, I let them go. I can go pretty far into it. So I basically, if I have people I trust, I can let them go. You know, let's see how can I escape this at the very late stage. And if I can, great. Uh, you know, I, you know, I tried to pay attention. Can I recreate this pattern? Can I recreate this pattern? Good. And then it's good defense. Now, but sometimes you're wrong. It's either maybe you just did not move in time or maybe that pattern is not, you know, it's not the one that you should be following. So when that happens, you know, you got to tap. Otherwise you risk damage. How about like you're working with a white belt, you know, and you want them to sort of feel what an arm bar is like. That That is like one of the my things you got to be careful. Like, you know, people, again, this goes back to like, I have a right. No, 
The point is, you know, some people just don't have the subtlety of knowing how far it is, or you let them do it. They don't, they get so excited. They like rip it. So a lot of times, you know, and especially if you're a big, strong person, it's becomes, you know, depends what pace they set. And, and a lot of times you don't know what that pace is going to be. And then next thing, oh, I got something crack. So you got to be really careful with that. I think training with white and blue belts is, is useful because you get to kind of experience sort of almost a reaction that maybe somebody who does not practice jujitsu, how they would react. However, you got to be really careful, especially with bigger, stronger, athletic guys because they, and it's not, it's not malice, but also understand like they don't have the years and decades of training to understand they can cause damage or how you slow down understanding that, hey, this guy's taking it easy on me. I need to reciprocate. They think that they somehow got to this position themselves. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they just do something unexpected and like suddenly like, you know, you, you caught a training because you're thinking like, okay, I'm playing with them. I, because you're not mentally ready to tap. That's, I tell people same thing. You know, we have like some students, they, they travel heavily. Like, you know, some, you know, professionals, they, you know, I've, I, people work 70 hours a week. They're tired. If you mentally tired, you may get caught in submission, but by the time you realize that mentally to actually initiate the tab, it might be too late. That's where training partners and, and selection becomes very important. Again, you're 23 years old. You know, you live in mommy's basement. She does your laundry. She does your, she does your, uh, cooking and everything. And basically you go to school part time and the rest is spelled, you know, jujitsu, skateboarding and whatever conditioning you get to sleep in whenever you feel like it. You have no responsibilities. You're, you're going to be always good. You're going to be fresh. I, I tell my students, you know, there's certain certain laws of physics it's not just physics it's you know that jiu-jitsu cannot overcome and you need to be careful again you know you go with some relatively new new person and the person is exhausted from or you know a new parent <laughs> i have one of my students his wife had a baby a few months ago he's i'm pretty sure he's about getting two hours of sleep a night he's good but do you think he's gonna be good like you are good and suddenly you, you see something you you decide to pull it while the guy's half fall asleep during the roll it doesn't have a chance to tap in time to protect himself so there's two ways it's either you got to be cognizant of that which is very difficult for relatively inexperienced practitioners or the guy can say no Jiu-Jitsu trends. As of this recording, what's in the air in the zeitgeist of Jiu-Jitsu right now is the whole wrestle-up movement. Your thoughts on that? Well, I like it. One of the things that's very frustrating to me is, is in some competitions is, you know, people either have lack of experience or have more rudimentary game than the other guy and takedown becomes everything. And, you know, that's great. But if you got a 10 minute match and, you know, spend eight and a half minutes of it trying to get a takedown, first of all, nobody wants to watch it. So it's one of two things. It's either the two guys don't have good takedowns or they might have very good takedowns, but evenly matched. It's a really good way to potentially get things engaged. And I'm a big fan of engagement. I will try to take you down, but if I can't, I'm going to pull guard. Let's get going. If you start to back away, I will wrestle up. Think about the mentality. When two guys are standing, the mentality is, I'm going to stop your takedown and I'm going to take you down. Both of them, exactly the same one. Now, once one is on the ground and the other one is standing, the standing guy's general mentality is, I need to, you know, of course you could have a flying arm bar. And, but generally speaking, the mentality is, I need to pass his guard. The bottom guy is, like, okay, I need to get a sweep usually or submission. Well, wrestle up, it just adds one more element. If I pull guard or you take me down and you start to back away, I will try to tie you up. I will try to get grips in a, in a way to get a make a submission or get a sweep. But if you back it away, I will come up. And a lot of times that's going to be a lot quicker than if we stand around for whatever, the, whatever round time you pick trying to take each other down. Jiu-Jitsu dogma in terms of like what's working 
in the gi that doesn't work in no gi? What's working in no gi that doesn't work in the gi? Obviously, the lapel game, you know, the squid guard and worm guard and, you know, all the chokes using the, the lapels. I actually am a big fan of both, but more not so much for the variety of, of submission techniques with the gi. I like the rhythm of the games different. It's it's That's why really, because the rhythm, that becomes a skill that you need to have, you know, regardless whichever gi or no gi you decide to pursue. So with the gi, I get a lot of triangles, back takes, you know, into sort of the ugly triangles, a lot of sort of modified Americanas. What I do with Nogi that I get a lot of, that I probably get a lot less with the gi is, is sort of the guillotine, guillotine chokes. Lately, I'm working on, on a sort of one-handed guillotine and, and sort of the head control. And I find it, it's a, the grip's a little bit different. But if you saw me training in the gi and Nogi, if you overlap those, like if you could switch one gear for the other, you would not see a materially different game. I, again, I, I do. I'm a big fan of the gi more for the rhythm than for the grips. Yeah, I've heard you mention this this notion of a universal game, which I often uh, parrot that as well to people. Universal grip. I do it a lot of knee bars with the gi, and basically, when the guy bends his leg on a knee bar, it's either ankle lock or heel hook. So, in my school, we don't do heel hooks with the gi. But so I have that with no gi. So basically in, in the gi, if I attack the knee and the guy bends his leg, I usually wind up going to either estima or uh, ankle lock, straight ankle lock. In no gi, it's a lot easier to transition from a failed knee bar into a heel hook. Your thoughts on uh, closed guard no gi? Because I know some pros are not, uh, they kind of poo-poo it. It's, it's very difficult because what are you going to do? Like, there's not a whole lot you could do with Nogi. And, and I think, you know, if you look at Nicholas Maragalli or, or guys like that, they're very exciting even in the Gi. It's not Gi versus Nogi. It's the players. It's the practitioners. It's the guys that decide, I'm going out there. I'm going to finish. I'm going to take risks. And they, a lot of times, these guys have a more sophisticated game, more technical game and are able to catch people. But, you know, I, I think a lot of the guys, you know, the more they train with Nogi, you got to open things up because you don't have the cross collar grip you don't have sort of like me let me grab you with these iron grips and you cannot move you need to open things up and make things happen as opposed to just like okay i'm gonna hold you i'm gonna make things so difficult for you that you're gonna either stumble or you're gonna do something stupid and i'm gonna catch you with it which a lot of times at the high levels doesn't happen that's why you have such tight margin of victory whereas nogi people have to open things up you could see it's very dynamic and and i think you could translate that into the gi as well you know again i i advocate for guys that primarily train in the gi to do no gi as well. Again, for a different, it's a different pace, different rhythm. It teaches you to open up your game and still kind of go after the guy without compromising your position or scoring. That's so interesting because I started heavily influenced by you of just uh, instead of primarily focus, you know, everyone typically starts closed guard, but I was really emphasized by watching you a lot is uh, playing the feet on the hips a lot in the split guard initially from the get-go and having transitioned to Nogi, boy, has that been a big help. You know <laughs> what I mean? I just, holy hell. You know, every, and what's amazing too is I, I meet other sort of masters, five guys and who love Nogi now, you know, I it's this sort of thing that I've fallen in love with and everyone's like, uh, Gi is like an older person's game and i don't know i don't know that that's no the case. i think it's basically pe people have certain preferences and then they try to justify those preferences uh, i personally like uh, nogi probably better just because it's faster but i make it a point to train gi pretty much every time i train nogi so basically when i go tr when i train i try to do half and half 
because it is that important. I've spent it uh, probably going back 15, maybe more years. I spent about a year of only doing nogi and pretty much maybe once or twice. And going back to the gi from nogi, <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. But one thing you do realize is, geez, what a force multiplier the gi is. When you come back to the gi yeah. from no gi, you're like, wow, man, these controls are insane. I can really throw yeah. people around. Yeah, yeah. I, I really believe that it enhances each other. And I and I think, you know, like look at Marigali. I think he's a great example of, of how that could enhance. You know, I, I think Gordon looks like he's training with Marigali, maybe some gi, you know, maybe just to be a good good teammate, good training partner. But I, I really believe that it, your skin won't burn if you put on the gi. <laughs> you know, how do you wear that belt that you've been given if you never put on the gi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Vox, before the show, we were talking about a little bit about recovery kind of stuff. And, and for those of us that are feeling pretty banged up, what's your process? You talk about your wrists and all this stuff. I mean, you've been in this game long and you, you're at the academy all the time. You've got miles on you, as some of us do, and we're in some pain. Uh, what are you doing for uh, recovery? Uh, you know, I, I basically do the water training. You know, if you train often enough, and I, you know, we say often enough, it means four to five days. Uh, by the way, I recommend that. Once you've been training for a while, you got to start training. But two to three times a week is not enough. That's just, you know, like if you're really serious about jujitsu, you really want to be good, you got to train. You know, the problem what what happens is two to three weeks is exactly like, you know, when you go to the gym and you lift, right? You break down mu a muscle fiber. You need a day for the muscle fiber to recover. And that's how you build size and muscle and so forth know enough about this to be dangerous what happens is when you use jiu-jitsu for such what do you think your game is going to be is it going to be technical no you've like okay you're going to be bah, you know like power and jiu-jitsu is not power it's technique it's precision it's you know it's sophistication yeah power has uh, has has to do with it as well but that is not number one if you could pick only one attribute that should not be the number one so i think when you go to once you go past that two to three times a week, which basically allows you to body to recover, and then you could go back like a meathead, go crazy and feel like shit for the next two days. And then you recover and suddenly you become back to normal and then you do it again. I don't believe that is the, the, the best way to grow your skill over a long time. Now, once you cross that into four to five times or more a week, you basically now perpetually banged up. So now you have to approach your training in a different way because if you try to train five days a week like or six days a week like full power, you're going to be like, you just try to survive. You'll be just laying under somebody and just like, just trying to survive, not actually trained to get better. So you need to make adjustments to, basically, I, I'm, I'm a fan of sort of almost like a weekly regimen. I have a weekly regimen. Basically, certain days tend to be hard, certain days are medium, certain days are easy. So days that I don't, there's like if Wednesday is, is one of those days. I basically don't teach, I don't train. I basically just train in the water. Basically what I do, I do solo water drills for BJJ. I do not swim. If you go to put fluid BJJ, Silver Fox, or you put Carl Pravec, K-A-R-E-L-P-R-A-V-E-C, water drills, two videos will pop up. So they will both give you a pretty good idea what, what I'm doing in the water. But basically, that is what is keeping me from the wheels coming off, I think. <laughs> You've been swearing by this for years and years. It's amazing. You haven't changed your, your tune at all. 
it's an oddball thing, but it is, I believe that is probably the, the thing that is the single handedly most responsible for my continued advancement in jujitsu without breaking down altogether. You know, the water gives you buoyancy. So it reduces the load on my lower back. I've had perpetually bad back since I was a kid. Uh, obviously jujitsu doesn't always help it. Uh, basically, so it reduces the pressure of gravity on, on, on the lower spine. Uh, it's good for people that have knee injuries, that have hip injuries. Basically also the water slows you down. So basically you have water resistance, but you also, instead of trying to go through the technique with a 250 pound guy laying on top of you, trying to resist you, you actually go through it solo. So you actually wind up visualizing your opponent's reaction, which visualization is extremely important tool in all sports and arts, even fine arts. When you visualize things, you kind of try to come up with a response. And then you, as you're doing it solo, you, again, you don't pay attention to the other guy. You pay attention to yourself and you start to realize, oh man, I'm, I'm not tucking my leg the way I should, or I thought I was. I need to tuck in the leg. And then, you know, it becomes fun. It's good to do. Like when you travel, it's easy. You could, you know, whatever site you use and you book a hotel, it's, you know, you just click, have a pool and there you go. Now you can do it when you're traveling, when you're on vacation. So I personally believe it's, it's an extreme extremely, extremely underrated tool. For me, it's it's a key tool. It, it truly is because literally my process when I, so let's go through my creative process. We are, after all, practicing an art, right? We established that, that we don't want it to be a sport. You know, I'm training with one of my guys and after six months of me hitting them with the something that was really, really effective, it starts to not work. It starts to get countered. And so I, I think about it in the pool. Maybe I have an idea. I play around with it. I try to do it to him. It's not quite right. But something in the back of my head somehow, maybe, you know, I kind of remember and, and then I do it and I just do something to him. And I was like, with Enrique, like I have literally hundreds of videos on my phone of not just Enrique, but all my training. Like, hey, do you mind if we, re let's recreate it. Let's do it. And then I'm like, oh, what if I do this? And I, now I'm like, okay, I think this works. This is good. This I need to. So then I, what I do is I start to play around with it in the pool. So that's how I build muscle memory. So now I have muscle memory. I focus on my own movement, not at the movement of my, my opponent, but my own movement, obviously trying to imagine what my opponent is doing. And then I start to hit him on, on, on them live. And then I run with it until the next, next thing. That's like one of the things that helps me stay at the forefront, I think, of, of jujitsu technique, technically. Has your view of the evolution of where we are in jujitsu now and, and where it's go forward, has that changed in the past couple of years? What do you see? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a bunch of things that are going on. I think uh, jujitsu is evolving extremely fast. And I think it's it becomes more important for people. Used to be kind of like more like this is jujitsu. Now it's becoming this is my approach to jujitsu. So it's very important for people to try to actually trying to mimic or, or kind of pursue the style of jujitsu that, that I, is most suitable for them. Say if your personality and bodybuilder is a tractor, trying to duplicate a Ferrari's game is not going to happen. So, uh, you know, you really need to kind of give some thought and, and, and trying to kind of say, okay, this is kind of, this is where I want my evolution to be. Of course, be open to others because sometimes you may miss something or be like, oh man, I really like this. This, I think would be good for, fit for my game. So that's one thing that's happening. It's just evolving so fast because what's happening, I think, between the constant availability of technique, it's free, it's paid, you know, it's evolving fast. I, for me, you know, I, I've done a video for seven years ago for jiu-jitsu and you know i did a couple of videos for maybe four for uh fanatics two years ago and now i'm doing the app my game is constantly evolving my game is better than it was two years ago it is not dramatically different but it will be different just like a car when you buy a car every five years that model is going to be redesigned it's going to be better faster that's what's happening also i think as 
you see so much proliferation of technique online, whether it's free or paid, I think it puts almost a requirement on teachers to be good. Because if you're not a good teacher, your students are going to get that stuff somewhere else. You used to be like nobody knew, you know, if, if their teacher was crap, but the guy could beat up everybody that walked in the door that day, you know, they thought he was, he was amazing, but he could be crap. But now, you know, most teachers have to be good because there's, it's not just a local standard, it's become a global standard. So, uh, that's what I'm seeing. I think, uh, people are starting to perhaps realize that let's not try to get jujitsu in the Olympics. So that way it becomes like a very, okay, this is how we do it. But almost like the people are starting to play around with the rules, trying to tweak them and let's enjoy the rules. You know, to be honest, I watched that, uh, Iga, Igo, the one in, um, in Kazakhstan. And it's, it's, you know, I couldn't quite understand the, the rules because I think it was team effort. You know, you had three periods and all this. However, you know, when you see good jujitsu, good submission grappling, it's fun. If it turns out that it's good, people will watch, people will adopt the good stuff and kind of leave the, the bad stuff behind you know that's how innovation is done so i think there's a tremendous amount of innovation you do seminars all over the world you've been doing a lot in europe can you talk about like your experiences with let's say seminars uh, as of 2023 and go forward so i do a, a you know camp in check i actually uh, you know so i do camps and seminars and to be honest with you, i enjoy the camps better what's what's the difference between camp and seminar the camp usually lasts multi-days three to six days and a seminar is usually just one day one one night so so I personally prefer the camps because there's a lot of people that do camps around the world and some of them, you know, have eight to 10 hours or 12 hours of instructional or mat time. My personal view is I usually try to put the camps in places that are kind of cool. And what I mean by that is historically there's people can see castles, they can see Greek theaters, Roman ruins and things like that. I like to have a beautiful nature nearby. I like to expose people to not just jujitsu or at least my style of jujitsu, but also have them see and, and experience things that they normally would not were it not for jujitsu. And one of the things I'm very proud of is a lot of people tell me uh, that this was like the best week of their life. And these are people that have traveled and some of them have never traveled. I've brought people to Sicily. If you're a reasonably well-traveled person, Italy is probably a bit on your list, but not Sicily. People that have never traveled come to Sicily or they come to Czech Republic, which, you know, we do the camp out two hours outside of Prague. So if somebody's going to travel, they're going to go to Prague and you should see Prague for sure. But we do it in, sort of in a small town where we go to the guys, local guys' houses and we wind up hang, hang out as a group, talk, you know, have meals together. So it's a much better bonding experience. And generally speaking, I try to teach two to four hours a day. So give you some jujitsu instruction, but also more importantly, make sure we leave enough time for you to actually experience the place that you've traveled so far to, to experience. We look at the cuisine, the history, the, the culture. We, you know, with the Sicily tour, we, we go to visit Mount Etna. We had a tour of winery. We, you know, the hotel is on a beautiful beach. Uh, you know, we have a tour of the Greek, which is even pre-Roman, 2,500 year old theater that's still in use today. I, I view my ro role as a teacher a little bit more broadly, not just, okay, I'm going to teach you jiu-jitsu. Generally, the size ranges from the small ones, 30 people. And it's usually decided by the local facilities what we can have. You know, it's not uh, 30 in Costa Rica and, you know, in Holland, it's going to be 120 people. So, <laughs> so it's going to be packed. 
Well, Fox, where can we get more information about you and uh, everything that you're up to? Everything is under SilverFoxBJJ. SilverFoxBJJ.com. YouTube channel is SilverFoxBJJ. On Facebook, I'm under SilverFoxBJJ. Uh, well, I, I have my personal account. On Instagram, guys, I have access to it. I do post a lot, but also there's other people. So uh, the best place to send me a message is probably Facebook, uh, not the Academy page. The Academy page has logo. My personal page has my picture in a, in a blue gi. Just remember, keep in mind. So if you send me a question on the Academy page, sometimes it gets lost because there's other people that have access to it. Same thing on Instagram. On my personal page, I'm maxed out at friends, but I, you know, usually people still send me uh, messages still. So that'd be probably the best place. All right, everyone, we will add all those links in the show notes to everything that was mentioned in the show. Again, I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. You know, give us a thumbs up, subscribe on Spotify, you know, leave some comments, answer our Q&A and all that stuff. Thank you so much for, for uh, watching and listening out there. Fox, thanks so much for your time, man. It was great. Let's do it again. Sounds good. I'll see you soon. All right. See you guys.